Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, it's Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. It's Wednesday, September 14th. Barack Obama is back on the political stage. He's making appearances this year to promote democracy in the United States and around the world. He's been doing that. And now he's helping Democratic candidates in the midterm elections raise money. And in some cases, he's campaigning for them. CNN reported last week that that will include candidates for secretary of state in various key states, an office a former president would hardly have paid attention to in the past, right? But this year is different with the way elections are certified being under attack. Here, for example, is Obama in a speech in April at Stanford University. We have to admit that at least in the years since the Cold War ended, democracies have grown dangerously complacent. But too often we've taken freedom for granted. What recent events remind us is that democracy is neither inevitable nor self-executing. Citizens like us have to nurture it. Former President Barack Obama on democracy. Obama is also supporting the Biden agenda in many of these appearances, of course, and Biden, of course, was Obama's vice president for eight years. But their relationship is more complicated than you might imagine. A new book by New York Magazine national political correspondent Gabriel De Benedetti explores that relationship, including its implications for this fall's midterms and for 2024, in a new book called The Long Alliance, The Imperfect Union of Joe Biden, and Barack Obama. With us now is New York Magazine national political correspondent, Gabriel De Benedetti. Gabe, always good to have you on, and congratulations on the book. Thanks so much, Brian. It is always a, a true pleasure to be here. And let me start on a few specifics from your book that might be newsworthy right now. Then we'll pull back to the bigger picture of the Obama-Biden relationship. You do write about the role you think Obama will be playing in the midterm election campaigns from now to November. How would you describe it? Uh, he's likely to be very helpful for Democrats broadly. Um, he has really calculated that the best way for him to deploy his political uh, strength over the, you know, in his post presidency, but especially during the Biden years, is to lay back as much as possible until the final stretch, show up in person, cut some ads, but to be careful about it to make sure that his voice carries the most weight as possible. Uh, and as you just heard, as you were just talking about, he has been watching closely some races for governor, for secretary of state um, that will have implications for how the election is carried out uh, on a purely logistical level in 2024, because he's thinking a lot about threats to democracy right now. It is amazing, isn't it? Is campaigning for secretary of state in various <laughs> states something you ever thought any former president would be doing? Uh, no, and certainly that's not something that Barack Obama thought he would be doing when he first conceived of what his post-presidency would look like. But of course, the lesson of the last you know five years or so is that very little of this has looked exactly like what we thought it was going to look like. And we played that clip of Obama from April. How much does that represent what he's most concerned with or spending his time on these days? 
Yeah, as far as politics is concerned, that's sort of his big thing. He is also working on some climate initiatives. He's got his foundation. Um, it's important to know. I think there's a, lot, a misperception about the way that he and he and Biden operate. You know, they talk a decent amount every few weeks or so. Um, but it's not as if Obama is, you know, uh, a real advisor to Biden on day to day policy or day to day politics, even or strategy. Um, they talk. They have check ins. They have what someone once referred once called it uh, political therapy to me. Um, no one else is on those calls. So it's not as if they're making major decisions between the two of them. But he is thinking about the biggest threats to democracy. Um, you know, this all fits within the theme of when he talks to friends about what his post-presidency has been like. You know, as I just said, it has very little to do with how he originally conceived of it. But it's because he doesn't think he gets to properly fully retire right now. Not when the you know state of the American democracy is in such peril. You, you write it in the book about how Biden as president sometimes has misread the challenges ahead of him as president because of his sometimes unrealistic views of the Obama years. What unrealistic views are those? Well, I think a really good example of this is when you looked at uh, early on in the Biden administration, he talked a lot about how in selling his COVID relief uh, bill, which was, you know, a massive investment. He was going to learn from the Obama years and he was going to spend a lot of time trying to sell that bill to the American people to make sure that it was politically popular under the belief that one of the problems with when uh, with with what happened with when Obama had his stimulus in 2009. The the idea that Biden is sharing here is that that administration should have spent more time explaining that legislation to the American people. Um, his belief is that one needs to work harder with Capitol Hill to get a bigger coalition, but certainly that one needs to, a president needs to explain what they're doing in very concrete, easy to understand in terms of the American people. In the short run, that was certainly, it certainly seemed that was true, but it didn't take long before, you know, the American people totally forgot about what was in that bill. They didn't really give him much political credit for it. And the idea that Biden had, which was that this was one simple trick that the Obama that they weren't doing during the Obama years and that he would be able to pick up on, you know, that was belied by the real experience where Republicans in particular had totally polarized against him um, and were completely unwilling to give him any credit. And that's not just elected officials, but also people at the local level. And not just in the Biden administration, it really jumped out at me. Um, you're reporting and kind of reminding us that Obama was convinced that his own reelection in 2012 would force Republicans to calm down and quit their obstructionism. But yeah. remind us <clears throat> about Republican obstructionism before Donald Trump ran for president. We're talking about 2012 and, and thereabouts. Um, and if we're seeing history repeat itself under Biden. Well, sort of famously, you know, as soon as Obama was elected, there were meetings within the Republican leadership about how to obstruct him. And Mitch McConnell said, we want to make him a one term president. But all throughout the first term, there was this tension between Biden and Obama about how much time to actually spend trying to win over Republicans on various things. Of course, they didn't have to during the first two years that much because they had control of, of the House and Senate. Democrats did. But then for the rest of Obama's term, they really did have to work with Mitch McConnell and John Boehner and reckon with the rise of the Tea Party and, you know, racist birtherism theories and things like that. So we really saw the rise of this kind of obstructionism during the early days of the Obama years. 
But all that time, you know, though there was some tension internally about how much time to spend wooing Republicans, uh, it didn't really come out until much later because for the most part, everyone was on the same page. You got to do what you got to do. And though Obama didn't like spending a lot of time trying to win over votes, Biden was always willing to do that, um, even if it was going to be a little bit of a long shot. But but things started to change after the re-election. You know, Obama used to say the fever will break and Republicans will work for or work with us because they have to and because this election proves that that's what the American people want. But he stopped saying that after the uh, gun control experience, after Sandy Hook, when they tried to pass the Manchin-Toomey legislation, tried to pass restrictions on gun control, and Republicans were just totally uninterested after a while in really getting anything done. And he really soured, Obama really soured on the idea of whether there was even any possibility of working across the aisle at that point. But Biden wasn't so convinced. He was obviously shocked by the level of Republican obstruction, but he kept going. He was one who always said there's always a deal to be made. And partially that was just because he felt that that was his role within the administration, but also because he just felt that that was how Washington worked. And to this day, there's still a little bit of a disagreement there. And you see it. And we saw it early in the Trump era when Obama used to talk about uh, Trump once he had come around to what he truly thought of him uh, when Trump was president, you know, privately, he would talk about Trump as this product of the warping of the modern Republican Party and a natural next step for these people who are getting more and more extreme. But Biden always maintained that Trump was an aberration and not an outgrowth of republicanism. So uh, it took some time for the two of them to really find some coherence in the way that they talked about it with each other. But you've seen this essentially tension uh, transform, and, and not just tension, but discussion transform in many ways over the last 10 years or so, certainly 15. Would you say that Biden, with his relationships in the Senate, has been any more successful then Obama at getting things done across the aisle. We can point to a few examples, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the bit of gun control that they did get on a bipartisan basis. Anything? Yeah, absolutely. Those are big. Those are those are massive accomplishments as far as the administration is concerned. And they're on topics that Obama was not able to make that much uh progress on, or certainly Democrats weren't during the Obama years. But of course, the biggest accomplishments of the Biden administration, if you look, for example, at the climate bill, um, you know, that was done purely with Democratic support. Now, it did take a lot of uh, Senate know-how to get there, but I do think that it's sort of impossible to look at the shape of how Biden looks at uh, Capitol Hill now versus how he did as vice president without acknowledging that the ground has shifted it's much more accepted to just get things done on a partisan basis um, than it was, you know, even five or 10 years ago because of the changing norms within the Senate, but also because of this broader understanding in the political landscape that bipartisanism, while it is possible on some issues, it's just no longer the expectation. We're talking with Gabe DiBenedetti, national politics correspondent for New York Magazine. He's got a new book called The Long Alliance, The Imperfect Union of Joe Biden and Barack Obama. You, you write in this book um, about O'Biden, uh, uh, O'Biden, I've merged them into one person. <laughs> See that? That's how close they actually are. Uh, about Biden's victory in the presidential election. And by the way, he won the presidential election for anybody who's there. Um, delaying a reckoning within the Democratic Party, even like an internal civil war. What kind of reckoning do you see as coming? Well, you know, if you look, for example, at what happened after uh, Donald Trump won, there was a very large 
uh, the beginning of a war within the Democratic Party about its post-Obama identity. And if you think back, this feels like ancient history, but if you think back to 2019 and 2020, it wasn't totally obvious to anyone in the early days of that presidential campaign that Biden was actually offering, you know, a a a position in the side or a side in this fight for the future of the Democratic Party, because what he was saying was essentially we can, you know, not explicitly restore the Obama years, but there is a middle way. We don't have to pretend that you can go all the way to the Bernie left or go all the way to centrism. Um, and so for a long time, it really felt like, you know, the the Bernie left, for example, you know, to, to put it in stark terms or to put it to oversimplify it, I should say, um, was on the upswing leading into that election. And certainly into the final days of the primary, it felt like Bernie Sanders was going to be the nominee. Um, and that was, of course, at a point where Obama looked in and said, I'm not sure that Bernie can beat Trump. That's a slightly different story. But Biden all the while is offering this notion that real voters uh, are not particularly interested in that kind of change. As as the Washington you know uh, media might 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 have it, or voters in the earliest states. So Biden was always making the case that those were not representative. Um, as a result, because he was able to win, and because the threat of Trump was so large and looming, you know he really did put off this reckoning in the Democratic Party about what its identity is going to be. And you see that with the fact that he's able to work well with Bernie Sanders, but also work well with Joe Manchin. But no one within the party currently thinks that those tensions have been put to rest forever. Um, simply. That that because Biden is widely known and widely liked within the party and widely accepted as this figure who is the least, uh, you know, the least offensive figure for so many people, he may not inspire immense positive passions, but everyone kind of agrees that he's reasonable um, within the party. He's been able to put off some sort of larger disagreement. Were you surprised then that he came into office uh and try to be the next FDR, the next LBJ, as a lot of sure. people said in his first year, something maybe more Bernie Sanders-ish with the original version of the big Build Back Better or American Families Plan, as it was once called, with you know sure. childcare programs that never existed before, um, universal pre-K at the national level, elder care programs, um, all these things that were really, you know, seen as the the next steps in the kind of social democracy that a Bernie Sanders might be enthusiastic about. Right. Uh, a few things here. I think the first thing to note that's very important to remember is when Biden started talking in these terms, and he's the one who first said the FDR ambitions line, um, that was in a different political reality. That was when he thought, and most of us thought, that he was going to beat Trump easily and that Democrats were going to have pretty wide control of the Senate and the House. Not this sort of semi-split version of Washington that we have now, where Democrats, of course, do have control of Washington, but it's a lot closer than anyone had anticipated at the time. And that said, you look forward, you fast forward a little bit from that spring and summer of 2020 to when Biden actually takes over. You know, one of his skills for many, many years has been finding the exact center of the Democratic Party and occupying that on politics and on policy. And that's what he thought he was doing by talking about all of these massive programs, because he felt when he talked to his colleagues in the Senate, especially, that that is where the direction of the party was headed, that they there was a lot of appetite for these massive changes, especially after he had been talking about them during the campaign and then won. 
but what he was sort of assaulted with this reality that uh, he only had 50 votes, of course, in the Senate in particular, and a small margin in the House, and that there are plenty of Democrats who don't feel that that was all the way, that, that the political will was going to be there to do that much massive change. It's important to remember that obviously Republicans were completely aligned against him. So uh, it's not as if he had a massive political will in a in a sort of overwhelming sense. But Democrats were not as aligned behind him as he thought. And in some ways, that was a miscalculation that he thought he was at the center of the party, where in reality, he was overreading some of the energy and some of the commentary that had gone his way during the election, but started to shift back, especially after he passed his first massive piece of legislation, which was at least a short term success. And that was the COVID relief bill. Gabe DiBenedetti with us, author of The Long Alliance, The Imperfect Union of Joe Biden and Barack Obama, and Richard in Orange. You're on WNYC. Hi, Richard. Yes, good morning. Uh, Long time, first time. Thanks for having me. Um, I finished reading the book, uh, a book by Lee Drutman uh, called The Breaking of the uh, Two-Party Doom Loop. We talk about... Uh, moving America to a multi-party democracy, which will be a lot more representative uh, for all voters um, because we have to address the voter apathy problem in America, which kind of causes this backlash going from Obama to Trump to Biden. It's, it's really not very healthy to run a democracy that way. So I guess my question is, we hear a lot about uh, ranked choice voting, popping up in elections all over the country seems to be a strong trend that will hopefully continue hopefully in november we'll see that the that the gop will fraction hopefully into two parties the maga trumpers are not going anywhere um no matter how crazy they are everybody deserves a seat at the table unfortunately but that's the way democracy works and eventually the democrats will have to consider the same thing um aoc bernie they don't necessarily belong in the same party as a a joe manchin cinema so i guess my question is what 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 can we foresee for american democracy Mm -hmm. because if we continue in this two-party system it's we're probably going to end up with severe civil conflict at some point Richard, thank you for that interesting question. Um, Gabe, do you think with the fractiousness within the Republican Party that's certainly being reported on a lot now and your description of the Democratic Party, Biden kind of being the glue that's holding off something that's coming inevitably, that's something from a, a reckoning to a political civil war within the Democratic Party, you think we're headed for a multi-party democracy instead of a two? Well, I think that there's sort of a false equivalence here. Uh, it's true that Democrats have a lot of big disagreements about the future of the party, but there's nothing like what's happening on the Republican side, where they've been completely taken over by the Trumpist, uh, you know, version of that party. As to the question of the fracturing of the parties, you know, this is a conversation that's been going on for a long time. And there's no doubt that there are some serious, serious fractures there. Um, but we're not in for a multi-party system because you can't win. Uh, elections that way in the current American system. You know, ranked choice voting is a reform that is certainly being taken up and looked at in a number of different states. And that has helped in some cases, but that doesn't create new parties. 
And, uh, you know, neither Biden or Obama or any of the popular people in the Democratic Party, including, by the way, Bernie Sanders or, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, has expressed any interest whatsoever in supporting that kind of thing. Um, on the Republican side, you know, it's true that they have massive breaking points constantly, but that's because of a Trumpist takeover, not because of a split down the middle. You know, the, the, it's not down the middle. Uh, Trump Trump. Uh, endorsed candidates or Trump-like candidates are winning a lot of primaries all over the country, as we saw last night in New Hampshire. Um, so, you know, I I don't mean to uh, throw cold water on the idea of some sort of reform or, or breakup here, but you do have two parties that do have a lot of institutional reason for existing just based on how our system is shaped up. And I think that that, for the short term at least, is certainly not going to change. And we'll see, to the caller's other point, if ranked choice voting as it spreads weakens partisan polarization and the parties um, themselves having as much power as they do today. So, Richard, thank you for your call. Last question for you, and then we're out of time. You write about how the January 6th committee is shaping Biden's task of trying to get the country to move on. In our last 30 seconds, how is it influencing him? Well, he's someone who thinks a lot about his place in history and about the importance of maintaining democracy in this country. And so when he sees the work that's being done, then he's been very careful not to weigh in on it because he wants to maintain lines of independence. But it shapes a lot, you know, how he thinks uh, of his role and, you know, what he thinks of his task is as he looks forward to 2024 and maintaining, you know, free and fair elections. And that's a joint cause that he has with Obama, who, as we talked about earlier, is thinking about the 2024 election as well. One of the things here is that they have a joint legacy and both of them have been considering at this point what it looks like in the future for the two of them to be tasked with making sure not just that Democrats do well, but that the democracy survives. Gabe Benedetti, National political correspondent for New York Magazine, and now the author of The Long Alliance, The Imperfect Union of Joe Biden and Barack Obama. Congratulations on the book. Thanks for sharing it with us. Thank you so much, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.